Hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Now this is kind of exciting because I have in the past streamed some of my podcast recording live on Facebook Live, uh, but this is now the first time I'm streaming live on YouTube. And so I'm trying to get some more interaction. I'm, I'm getting some more questions from you. Questions are coming in through Instagram and through email and also just trying to interact and find new ways of reaching people. And so, hey, we're trying it out. And so hopefully if you're listening on podcast or on uh, radio or wherever it is that you're listening or even on YouTube, uh, you can come back uh, at another time, find when these are broadcasting live and follow along and be able to interact with me and ask your questions as I go through the information. And so, hey, if there's something I say that doesn't make sense, you can ask for some clarification and get that information. So uh, let me just throw out that the, the ways in which you can stay connected. And so in the future, you can know when these things are happening. I do have an interview coming up soon. I'll let you know more about that here in a second. But the ways that you could follow, I have that here, uh, is on Facebook, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. You can follow along on Twitter or Instagram at ryanpolly 3 is the ad there. Uh, you can go to coffeehousequestions.com. You can email questions in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Or I have a special number simply for text message questions, which is 714-989-6927. So those are some of the ways that you can stay connected and know what is coming up on the calendar. And the next big interview actually that I have is with Dr. Frank Turek from crossexamine.org. That is on the 15th of October. And actually, that is at 6 a.m. He's on the East Coast, and so that's when he can record. So hopefully, the live stream will also be going Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. California time, Pacific time, uh, with the Frank Turk interview. If you have questions, send those in before the 15th, as well as make sure, uh, as well as let you know that you can watch and interact live with that interview as well. So today on the show, we're actually going to be talking about a few questions that came in uh, from someone on email. Uh, Samuel actually sent these in. And so there's two questions that we're going to be talking through. The first one was, I was talking to a friend and I asked where right and wrong come from. She said that something is wrong if it hurts somebody. How should I reply? So that's the first question that we're going to be looking at. Samuel also wrote in and said, Recently, I've heard a lot of songs along the lines of God going extremely out of his way to save us. I know this is true in some instances, but God does, but does God put up through, put us through hard times and have us come to him in the process? So those are going to be the two main questions that we are going to focus on. And on the show, I have talked a lot on this question of morality and where does it come from? And it actually just came up recently in my high school class. So one of the cool things that I get to do at my school is 30 minutes a week, we have a time just called community groups where students are paired up with teachers and we can just take some time to build relationships. And so I have a group of about 12 students, 12, 14 students, I think. And each week it's 30 minutes and we take time and we just talk through some random different issues. And so uh, questions came in. Uh, they wanted to talk about comedy. So we had a really cool, I think, conversation on, and this is a kind of tips. I'd like to give tips as well. Uh, for, so tip for you, if you are having conversations with students, a great thing you can do is I showed clips of comedians and then asked about the ethics kind of of comedy, of entertainment. What should entertain us? And what some of these students were saying was, hey, as long as it has a punchline, it's fine. It doesn't matter if it's dark humor or whatever. As long as there's a punchline, it's okay. And so we actually had a really good conversation about should these things entertain us? And one student admitted, he said, well, we are entertained by them, but we shouldn't be. 
And I think that is the point is, is as we begin to look through and think through what it is that is actually entertaining us, do we want to be entertained by some of the things that are entertaining us? And then when we stop and think, we go, wow, that is kind of messed up, right? There's times where I've been sitting in my car and, and singing along to a song and all of a sudden I'm like, what am I singing, right? I don't even realize sometimes the lyrics or the things that are coming into my mind that is entertaining me. And so that is an interesting conversation that we got into. The next week, they actually wanted to talk, or I wanted to talk, about um, illusions and magic. And so I've been thinking through and actually teaching in one of my classes on this idea of epistemology. How do we actually know things? And what most people say is you know something if it has been proven, uh, maybe through science, uh, scientism, science is the way to know knowledge, but also it's what we see. But the thing is, is we see things all the time that we know trick us, right? If you've ever been to a magic show, the magician does magic tricks and he fools you. He makes you think or she makes you think that something just happened or something disappeared or they were able to move something in a certain way and you know your what your eyes saw is not actually real. And so the question then becomes, uh, what, what do we do? Uh, what do we do then uh, when we know that our eyes have deceived us, can deceive us, how do we actually know what is true? And it gets us, I think, to this really cool just foundation or just helping students think through, yeah, what do I actually think is real? How do I know what is real? An understanding of the truth coming from that which corresponds to reality, that which has evidence, that's what makes sense logically and, and, and also flows out of the nature of God. And so that was another kind of really cool conversation that we were able to have. But one of my students asked me the question, of what he has a lot of friends that are Catholic, and he's like, "Hey, what do I do when my friends say they're Catholic, but they don't actually live according to Catholic teachings? How do I tell them that they're not Catholic?" And I was like, "Well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't just go up to someone and say you're not Catholic. Uh, yes, I am, and then that's just going to cause a problem." But what this conversation led into, and this is how it relates to the question that came in from Samuel, is that I I kind of said, "Look, I like to ask questions." And I want to ask the question of, look, if, if someone is claiming to hold to a certain view, a worldview, a set of beliefs, but their actions or their behavior or even their language does not match that belief system, then I want to see that, recognize it, and kind of call them out on it and just ask questions. And so as an example, I brought up that within a worldview that is atheism, within an atheistic or a secular worldview, if God does not exist, then there is no objective standard for morality. And so then when an atheist says, hey, what this person did is wrong, I would, I'm going to say, well, hold on a second. How do you, by what standard are you judging this is wrong? Where do you get this understanding of rightness and wrongness? Where is your foundation? Now, again, we're not saying with this conversation that an atheist cannot know morality. They can. And it's not that they can't be moral. They absolutely can. There are some atheists that are probably better people than some Christians. The problem is, is a standard, a foundation for that morality. Right? If there is a moral law, laws are given by people, if there's a moral law that applies to us, a moral duty, things that you should and should not do, then there needs to be a moral lawgiver that gives us that law. And if there is an objective moral law that applies to all of humanity, cross-culture, cross-time, all people, all places, and all times, then there has to be an objective moral lawgiver that transcends humanity. That makes sense with God. In an atheistic view or a secular worldview in which there is no authority above government, then 
the highest authority you have are the governments or the, the people voting people into positions of leadership in the government. And so whatever laws you create becomes that moral standard. And so I said this and the students in my class go, well, hold on a second. No, you don't need, why, why would you need God to have morality? And so I kind of walked through it a little bit and, and they made the same comment. Well, no, I think that we know what is right and wrong based on if it hurts someone, right? And that's the question that Samuel brings up uh, where he's talking to his friend and she says, no, something is wrong if it hurts someone. Now, I, I've asked this question before on the podcast, uh, but I have a few other questions that I've been asking recently that I don't know if I've mentioned here before. Uh, what I normally will say is, well, hurt someone. Hurt someone how? Hurt someone physically? What about hurting someone emotionally? What about hurting someone mentally? What about hurting someone spiritually? Is, it, is that wrong? Do they have to know that they have been hurt? What if a doctor gives general anesthesia to a patient, does something inappropriate to them while they are unconscious, and then they wake up and they don't know that anything has been done to them. Has, have they been hurt? I would say yes. But now think about it on the flip side. What if, uh, well, to say, well, it's wrong if it hurts someone. Can you think of any pain that is good? I sure can. We give children injections and that causes them pain but we know that there's a benefit to that unless you are anti-vaccine then you would not see the benefit but you still get the point Um, I have been personally through sports injuries where I have taken physical therapy that was some of the most painful physical therapy I've gone through I was just writhing in pain on the table as they were rubbing this this uh, spot out of my leg where I got hit with a baseball it killed me. Well, was that was that wrong? Was that evil? Was that bad because it was hurting me? No, it was actually good for me. Right? And so I can think of off the top of my head, I can think of at least two, but I could go on and and think of more things that do take place to us, things that happen to us that do cause pain that we would say no, that is actually good. And I can think of some things that are make us happy. Like maybe eating ice cream at every single meal or kids eating sugar or um, there's lots of desires that we have that make us happy that we realize are not good for us. And so this becomes a very difficult standard if you're going to say something is wrong if it hurts someone. How do we even define hurt? And do we actually even believe that's the standard? Because now we have to just qualify what we mean by hurt. Well, it's hurt someone unless there's a positive outcome and then you can't really know any action is right or wrong if it's based on that outcome because you now can't judge based on if it's hurting them or not. Now you have to see after the hurt, does there have a positive effect? Well, now how soon do we have to be able to judge that positive effect? Does it need to be immediate? Well, what if it takes a week? How do we know if what we're doing is right or wrong in the moment? I would say that we can't. And so to me, this argument is powerful. The moral argument for God's existence is powerful because we do recognize that things are wrong. Just look at our culture. Our culture saying you can't take away our freedom to uh, for abortion. You can't close off the borders to immigrants. You should not do this. You should be doing this. You should not. I guess uh, there's a new law in New York that just got passed saying if you call someone an illegal alien, you can get fined up to $250,000. Now, maybe I'll talk about that in the future. I haven't looked into it a whole lot. I've just seen a couple postings on it saying you should not say these things to people. Well, why not? Is it simply just your opinion versus mine? 
and all I have to do is get my opinion voted into law and then therefore that becomes good? Well, if so, I've talked about this on the show before, but I'm going to say it again. If so, then you have to say that slavery was a good thing because it was legal. You have to say that segregation was a good thing because that was legal. And you have to say that every single social reformer throughout all of human history was evil because they were going against the culturally accepted and legal standard. That is something I don't think that people would want to do is to make that kind of jump. And so really what makes the most sense, how do we judge right and wrong? We judge right and wrong not based on the effect, not based on how if it makes us happy or sad, generally good things are going to make us happy and generally bad things are going to make us sad, but that's not how it works. Right and wrong is founded and grounded on the nature and character of God and his greatest commandments of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you go against that, that is sin, that would be evil. If you're using something in a way it was not created to be used, then that is wrong. And therefore, we have to understand what is the purpose of our lives? What? How did God create us to live? And then we can know what the right and wrong actions are. Because God exists, everyone can know morality. Romans chapter 2 says that the moral law has been written on our hearts so that we know what is right and wrong, even without, apart from the law. Because our conscience, it says it, our conscience convicts and even, um, what's the other word I'm trying to think off the top of my head? I didn't pull it up because I wasn't planning on talking about it. Uh, but it convicts us and it uh, condemns us or it allows us, right? It, it says, no, it's okay. You're fine. Do whatever you want. Or no, you shouldn't be doing this right? That, that's what our conscience is doing. And that is the moral law that God has put on our hearts. And so every single person has that. We can all be moral. We can all understand morality because God exists. And so hopefully, Samuel, this helps uh, respond to that first question you sent in of how would you respond if someone says uh, right and wrong is depending on how it hurts someone. Now, he went on uh, to ask another question. And this again has a kind of talking about trials and difficulties in our lives. But the second question was discussing songs, right? That he has heard some songs recently along the lines of God going through extreme measures to save us. Uh, he says, I know this is true in some instances, but does God really go to extreme measures to rescue us? Uh, does he sometimes put us through hard times and have us come to him in the process? Well, a couple things, and I don't know exactly what songs he is referring to, but it was interesting because right before I got this email from Samuel, I was discussing worship music and especially uh, the song Reckless Love with someone. Now, I know the normal way in which people kind of argue against the song or have issues with the song is the use of the term reckless. And I do have some thoughts on that as well, but that's not what we're going to talk about here. It was the other day what I was actually thinking more about is not the chorus, which talks about uh, the reckless love, but actually it's talking about like it was the bridge where it says there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me, right? And this kind of repeats over and over down, right? It's the reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. You give yourself away. Now, I do want to say that um, I'm going to come back around. I I don't think this is completely wrong. But I was thinking about this the other day, and these are just the thoughts that I have, is is it doesn't matter in, in, in the way that I'm thinking. It doesn't matter if you are a Calvinist or you are a Minion or Molinist. It doesn't matter your view 
of how someone is saved. I don't think that it's necessarily true to say there's no wall you won't kick down. The Arminian would say God has revealed himself to all people, but then he gives them the freedom to choose, and some people just choose to walk away, and he's not kicking down that wall, forcing them to believe. The Calvinist says that, look, God has the elect, and God has only revealed himself to the elect, and he has not revealed himself, and he has not opened the eyes of the unregenerate person. And so, yes, there is a wall that is blocking them. There is something that is keeping them from being able to see God clearly and come to a knowledge of him. And God is not tearing that down. And God has his reasons for not breaking that wall down. And so I think that no matter if you're a Calvinist or Arminianist on this view, there are some walls that God doesn't kick down. There are some mountains he doesn't climb up. There are some times where he doesn't go after certain people, either because they are not elect or because he has revealed himself and they have walked away and he is allowing them to freely make that decision. Now, what I do think, though, that this song is talking about is the extreme love of God, or as it calls the reckless love, that of what God actually did for us. What was, as Samuel puts in the question, what was the extreme way that went, God went out of his way to save us? He gave his only son. Right, the Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross was an extreme act that God did showing his love for us. And so we see in like parables where it says leaving the 99, right? That the God is desiring to go after the, the lost. And so I think that there is a way that we kind of need to reconcile this maybe. And, and I don't know the exact intentions behind the authors, but we initially hear these songs and I go, yeah, no, there's walls that God doesn't kick down there, right? There's mountains he doesn't climb up. There's, you know, the, the walls that he won't tear down. Uh, yeah, that exists for people. Why, why would the song say it? But then at the same time, it is maybe trying to get across to that point of God did do something extreme in sending his son to die for us, right? That, man, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life um, for his enemy, right? For someone that is not even a friend in that instance, right? It's easy to die for a friend, but Christ laid down his life while we were still sinners. And so that is huge. That is a massive act of love for God. Now, what about this? Does God sometimes put us through hard times and have us come to him in the process? And I would say, yeah, I do think so, right? And for this, I have written an article on my website called 10 Reasons Why God May Allow Suffering, right? And I, and I do think that God allows us to go through difficulties, and sometimes it is for the purpose of us coming into a relationship with him, right? Sometimes the, the pain and the difficulties in our life is used to show God's power. We see this in John chapter 9, verse 3, where um, the, 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 the blind man from birth, receives his sight. And, it, and Jesus says, look, it, it's not this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, right? So sometimes God's power is manifest through the, the suffering in our lives. Uh, we also see that sometimes the, the suffering in our life is, is used to remove our boasting, right? When we think that we're amazing, I'm the best, I got this, I can handle this, and something bad happens and we go, oh yeah, I'm not in control of my life. Right. And sometimes I use this and I try to point this out to students where they go, I'm, I'm my own authority. I'm in control of my life. I don't need anybody's help. And I stop and I go, look, you, you can't actually believe that. I mean, you, you can believe it, but you shouldn't. You're wearing clothes that you didn't sew, made out of materials that you didn't grow 
or make. You're wearing shoes that you didn't put together. You came to school in a car that you didn't drive. And if you drove it, you didn't build it. And you drove it on roads that you didn't pave. And you probably flew here in an airplane that you didn't fly or build. And you slept in a house that you didn't build, in a bed that you didn't make, eating food you probably didn't cook. And if you cooked it, you didn't grow it. Right? There's, and you can keep going. And the whole point is we rely on a lot of people for a lot of stuff. And then we think, oh, we're our own authority. But that is not simply true either because you can put that one to the test by just going and driving 130 miles an hour down the interstate. And when you get arrested or when you get pulled over and you go, oh, you know, officer, I'm my own authority. Uh, No one's in charge of me. Uh, See how that one goes. (laughs) It won't work very well. And so sometimes we get these big heads of like, oh, my goodness, I'm the best. I got this. I can do this. And sometimes pain and difficulty comes into our life as a way of kind of removing as a cause for removing the boasting um, and and kind of knocking us back down into reality of recognizing we need God. We need to rely on him each and every single day. Um, sometimes, as we see in the book of Job, uh, God uses suffering in our lives to demonstrate true faith to Satan. Like, look, this person is going to stand up for me no matter what. It's not just because they're rich, but because they do have true faith. Uh, we also see uh, God using suffering to demonstrate the body of Christ. Uh, there are times when we we need to be working together. We need to help one another. We need to work together in in building up the body of Christ. And again, when we everything is perfect, we don't really need others' helps. Others' help. Uh, it's one thing I love about my church is that you see when when people struggle, the the church comes around in incredible ways, and not just the church giving money or something as some do. But it's the people within the church coming along, cooking meals, and really encouraging in an incredible way. And that's what sometimes God is doing. Uh, he sometimes uses it to promote sanctification. We see that in James 1, 3-4, and Romans 5, 3-4, and 1 Peter 5, 10, that God teaches perseverance through afflictions, uh, that we, we learn our character grows through the difficulties that we go through. So could God use hard times to have us come to him, to have us understand him more? Absolutely. He could put us through these difficulties. God sometimes allows for affliction in the life of the righteous because, you know, the ministry is only possible in the suffering. Sometimes we go through difficulties so that you can help someone else through a difficulty, that you can be an encouragement to them as someone who truly understands because you have gone through something similar. Sometimes it's to prepare us for further trials. We go through something difficult and then we get through it and that builds our strength so that when something even harder comes along in the future, we're ready for it. God sometimes uses affliction in our lives to prepare us for the judgment of our works. Uh, one, of the, one of the texts that I used in this class that I kind of took this article from, uh, it's from Feinberg, and he says, As we endure afflictions, we should become more Christ-like. If we do, then, indeed, our lives are likely to be filled with the deeds that please God. If our lives are pleasing to God, there will be reward. Right, And so we, we, we learn it and we will get these rewards from God. Now, we don't do them just because we get the rewards, but we become more like Christ. We become what God has created us to do. And that goes back to that moral argument that sometimes we learn and we become more Christ-like as we go through difficulties in our lives. By the way, that does come from, uh, it's called, the book is called The Many Faces of Evil by John Feinberg. But the last couple is, the last one is, God may use afflictions of the righteous as a basis for ultimately exalting them 
bringing them into heaven. But then finally, God may use afflictions as a means to take the believer to be with himself. And so I do think that sometimes people go through difficulties uh, for the purpose of coming into a relationship with God, right? I, I think that we see that in a lot of testimonies that are shared where people, um, they only come to God when they've kind of hit rock bottom, when they have nowhere else to go. And I always use the illustration that uh, when you are full right after a meal, you don't even notice the vending machine. Some people see God as a vending machine, that he's just there, kind of this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism, that the God kind of is there. He, he's not super involved, but he's there to make us feel good, and he's there to make us be good. And so uh, when you are full, nah, you don't really need God, right? I'm good right now. I'm fine, right? I can do this on my own, what we just talked about. But it's when you are hungry, then all of a sudden you need food. You recognize that vending machine and you go to that vending machine for help. And so I think sometimes people, because of maybe the boasting, because of pride, they think, I got this, I can do this, I don't need God, and I'm going to live life on my own. And there are times, I definitely believe, where God puts us through hard times so that people go, oh my goodness, I can't do this, I need help, and they come to God in that process. And so I definitely agree, Samuel, that this does happen from time to time. And so I do think these songs uh, are not necessarily um, perfect in, in the words that they use, because I do disagree with some of them. But ultimately, yes, God's love is incredible of how he sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. That is an incredible outrageous act of love that God shared to us, and we should be so extremely grateful. He went out of his way. God did not have to do that. Uh, It is only by his grace, giving us what we do not deserve, that God, uh, that we have that chance of being saved. And so I do think that is absolutely incredible. So hopefully that helps in responding to a few of those questions. Now, a few more uh, kind of points as we wrap up. I mentioned the Frank Turk interview. Uh, that is a lot of fun. Um, also, the last interview that I did with um, Justin Brierly, I, I had a great time with that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I encourage you to check that interview out as well. And then ultimately, uh, what we did talk about in that interview is on October 11 and 12 is the Unbelievable Live Conference in LA. We're on Friday night. John Lennox and Dave Rubin will be having a conversation on God and culture. It's going to be a blast. This is going to be part of Justin Brierly's big conversation series uh, that are, it's going to be posted on Unbelievable Live. Uh, there on Friday night, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, October 11th. And on, on then on October 12th is going to be the Unbelievable Live LA Conference where they, uh, where we are Justin and uh, John Lennox and Jay Warner Wallace. And I don't remember everyone else, but a few other speakers are going to be there and doing training, going through, doing a conference. And it's going to be a great day. And uh, definitely looking forward to that. That is something that you do not want to miss. Looking on the calendar to find any other uh, events coming up, there is an event that I have in November, November 5th, I'll be at Redemption Hill Church in Whittier, California, actually speaking to their young adult groups. If you're in the area and you're a young adult, young adult, come by, uh, just doing an open Q&A there. And other than that, the calendar it is pretty open from now on. Rethink, oh my goodness, Rethink was amazing. I should finish the last couple of minutes talking about that. Uh, if you are in the Southern California area, you missed out. You should have been there. And if you were there, awesome. Good job on you. Uh, it was incredible. 27, almost 2,700 students 
points. I think it was like 2670 or 2660 uh, students were at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. This main auditorium sells out at 2000. Overflow was 700. It was incredible seeing so many students, leaders, and pastors there excited to learn, to defend the faith, and be able to talk to their friends. And it was an incredible time with some awesome, awesome speakers that were there. Now, if you're not in the Southern California area, there are other locations. Uh, Minnesota is going to be in November. There's also Dallas, Texas, and Birmingham, Alabama. So if you're in those locations, check out RethinkApologetics.com. But that is an incredible, incredible opportunity. I had the chance to talk on uh, the objection or the the cultural lie, the myth, because the entire theme is false ideas about God. So the false idea I covered is that God is anti-science. And so how do we understand this idea? And really that it's not true. And the thing I love most, and I talk about science on the show, so you know all the main points, but the thing I love most is being able to help students think clearly about this issue, that they have this cognitive distance, they have this disconnection about because they're only told one side. The church just kind of says creation, uh, believe it, and then in school they're learning evolution, and they just cannot connect these two things together. And so there's this disconnect that they lived with. And so it's awesome being able to talk to students, be able to give a clear perspective on evolution and science and faith and Big Bang cosmology, and then answer their questions that they have afterwards and actually see just this weight come off their shoulders. They go, okay, like this makes sense. And I love it. And it's a blast. And so I was so honored and privileged to be able to do that at Calvary Chapel Coast Mesa with the Rethink Apologetics Conference uh, hosted by Standard Reason. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Thank you for watching. Next time, join live, send in your questions, and have an awesome, awesome rest of your day. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pollard. To follow your love will guide my way.